0: As we begin this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think makes a good team? What do you think makes a successful team? If you were building a sports team, for example, you were a general manager of your favorite team, how would you do that? Well, you'd invest in finding the best possible draft picks and signing the best possible talent and coaches because you know that the best kind of talent on your teams is what gives you success and wins championships. If you were thinking about attending a seminar, you would look for what kind of success the instructors have, who's on the teaching team for that seminar. Uh, If you've uh, uh, seen any of the advertisements recently for the uh, programming software uh, offering, uh, the website Masterclass, uh, they have a number of different experts teaching you a variety of subjects, history, cooking, how to train your dog, how to cook barbecue, all sorts of things for just a low annual fee. And this isn't an advertisement for masterclass, but their advertising works like this. You should sign up for our program because we've got successful people teaching you the things that you want to learn. But you and I know that to have a successful team, it's more than talent, right? If you were looking to hire someone for your work, if you had uh, the capability, middle management or upper management, or you were your own boss and you were thinking of hiring someone, you'd want to hire someone who isn't toxic as an employee. And let's face it, if you were looking to be hired, you might be evaluating the company to see if it had a healthy work culture, uh, a place where it was fun to work. What are the other employees like? What's the boss like to work for? And, And so on. And when you're thinking of maybe dating or getting married, you, you might have a list of who makes the cut and who doesn't, and it's not just based on their successes, but something intangible, something inside them. When I was a youth pastor back in Canada a number of years ago, every year or so we would have a talk where we would talk about dating and relationships, and one of the things we would talk about, kind of introduce the topic of dating and marriage, was uh, we would talk about the list. What do you think you look for in a boyfriend or girlfriend? What do you think you uh, l- would look for in a, in a husband or a wife? And the girls would always say things like, well, he's, you know, he's got to be funny, cute, uh, you know, smart, godly, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, so the guys sometimes what they thought and someone would say, "Huh, breathing, huh, huh, you know, and it'd be a joke, got to be hot, got to be good to look at. You know, that's honestly not much of a list. But eventually, with a little bit of prodding, you could get them to realize that, that character matters. It was always a good teaching moment. We understand this, don't we? That it's not just our qualifications and our resume that matters, that makes a good team, that makes a good uh, place to work, that makes a good teacher someone to learn from, that makes a good person to date. It's not just their resume, but their character that matters. Jim Collins kind of cap captured this idea in his book, uh, now a standard for successful businesses. Uh, The book was called Good to Great, and he talked about the principle of start by asking first who, then what. In other words, ask for character first before you ask what we should be doing. And he coined it like this. Uh, On his website, he states, the executives who ignited the transformations from good to great did not first figure out where to drive the bus and then get people to take it there. No, they first got the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus and then figured out where to drive it. They said, in essence, look, I don't really know where we should, be, where we should take this bus, but I know this much, if we get the right people on the bus, the right people on the right seats, and the wrong people off the bus, then we'll figure out how to take it someplace great. And the good-to-great leaders understand, understood three simple truths. First, if you begin with who rather than what, you can more easily adapt to a changing world. If people join the bus primarily because of where it's going, what happens if you get 10 miles down the road and you need to change direction? You've got a problem. Second, if you have the right people on the bus, the problem of how to motivate and manage people largely goes away. The right people don't need to be tightly managed or fired up. They'll be self-motivated by the inner drive to produce the best results and to be part of creating something great. Third, if you have the wrong people, it doesn't matter whether you discover the right direction, you still won't have a great company. Character matters. Start with who, then continue to what. And the Bible agrees with that right? They talk about character all the time, transforming character. That's what we should be looking for. Um, Last week, our nominating committee met to talk about who we could approach and ask about serving in our highest positions in the church that you can hold, biblical uh, positions of leadership and authority in the local church, positions of elder, positions of deacon and deaconess And as we looked at those qualifications to get ready for that meeting, it's a weighty set of character characteristics that we're to look for. So maybe with that understanding that character matters, maybe you can help explain what Jesus is doing here. Because what is up with Jesus' choices in who gets on his bus For serving alongside him in ministry. What is up with Jesus' choices on who gets on the bus? Let me show you what I mean. In Mark chapter 3, verse 7, we read this Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And when the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he, but he c- c- gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus is unable to keep up the pace of this ministry. His healing ministry has taken off to the point where people are crowding him. They want to be close to him. They want him to do something in their lives and he wants to teach and he's having amazing results. Uh, Demons are being exercised from people and he's telling them to be quiet and he's, he's trying to still be near the crowds but be able to preach and teach and all of that balance and he's exhausted. I'm exhausted just reading that passage. You know, truth be told, after a Sunday of busy ministry, one of the most spiritual things I can do is go home and take a nap. Because by Sunday evening, after preaching on Sunday, maybe helping out on the worship team or or other things that needed to happen or other meetings that needed to happen, pastoral ministry, care ministry that happened after church, conversing with people before and after, I'm exhausted. I'm drained. I'm mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausted. I'm not much, so much so that I take a day off on Monday because When I tried to take a day off on Friday and work on Monday, I wasn't very productive. I was still exhausted. So I feel what Jesus is feeling. You felt that as well. You felt like as you've worked, as you've led in your family, as you've cared for them, then all of a sudden there's other things that come and other things that come and other things that come. And you know when you've reached your limit. Jesus has reached his limit and he Needs help. And these are the people that he gets to help him. Check out verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To to them they gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, Who betrayed him? There's lots of conjecture as to who these men are, but let me summarize. They're fishermen. Have you ever had an important task in ministry and thought, I know what I'll do? I'll go down to the port of Rochester and I'll get the people who are fishing off the side of the dock. They'll be the people that I'll entrust the most important ministry, family, personal business tasks to. Is that something you do? Of course not. He had tax collectors. (laughs) and Let's face it, we've talked a lot about tax collectors these last couple of weeks. The worst of the worst. They were their own category of sinful people. There were sinners and then there was the tax collectors, part of that sinful group. They were a special kind of sinner. The worst of the worst. They had national zealots. Jesus chose national zealots who were against all taxes to Rome, against all forms of outside influence in their country. So much so that they would resort to violence to resist. And some scholars even say that Judas, with the wordplay that uh, Mark is using here when he writes his gospel, he might not even have been fully Jewish. So Jesus, who wants people to preach and is uh, giving them the authority to preach and the authority to cast out demons, goes and gets someone who's not even part of the family and people of God. This is the worst of the worst. And I don't get it. Why is Jesus choosing them? The crowd didn't get it. These were the guys to help Jesus preach and cast out demons. These were the ones, these were the best you could find. The first readers of Mark's gospel were confused by this. This is Jesus who Mark is trying to say is the Son of God. This is the one who Mark described just a chapter earlier that he knew what the Pharisees were thinking and he was able to respond to that. Are you telling me that these are the best people that Jesus can come up with? These on paper are not good people choices. So what is up with Jesus' is thinking? Mark's uh, readers didn't get it, and the group that was there when this story was first happening, they didn't get it either. As a matter of fact, we read that Jesus' family thought he was nuts. Take a look at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, about what was happening, how the ministry was still on him, how Jesus had chosen these, well, these losers, like the bottom of the barrel to be his close 12 people to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. They went to take charge of him for they said He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. His family thinks he's nuts. And they're staging an intervention. You're ruining your life. You're ruining a good thing. You're you're, completely, you're just so desperate. This is like going to Craigslist and trying to get the next CEO of a major national bank. No one does this, Jesus. What are you up to? You're clearly out of your mind. And the religious rulers have a different idea. No, this is tactical. This isn't the mark of an insane person. This is the mark of someone with a more insidious agenda. This is the mark of a double agent. Because imagine a double agent who has high-ranking authority in, in one of our spy agencies, in one of our agencies for security in this country, the CIA, the FBI, or Homeland Security, uh, those kinds of things. And imagine, he, they just started to him, let's go down to the docks and let's get some workers and let's recruit some people who clearly have no skill and gifting and background in security and intelligence, and let's bring them in and put them into high-ranking positions that will influence national security and security and defense, and worldwide relationships all around the globe. No, this is someone who wants to undermine the nation. This is someone who's working for the other team. That's their conclusion. God would only choose the best, right? And since these are not the best, they're clearly some of the worst people Jesus could choose. Jesus must not be doing God's work. He's working for the other side. And how does Jesus respond to the crowd, to his family, to the Pharisees who say these things? Well, he calmly explains in verse 23. Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Jesus says something that is really interesting to me. Something that has kind of made Christians wonder and tremble through centuries. The Pharisees' reasoning is not invalid. It's sound thinking, but it's incomplete. And Jesus starts to describe that there's really kind two kinds of people in the world. There are people that are for him and people that are against him. He would say that later in Mark 9. He said that in Luke 9. Uh, Jesus would say that, you know, the people who aren't against me are for me. There's no category of indifference in other words, but there's only those two categories of people. So you're only working for one side or the other. So the Pharisees have it correct. If he's not working for God then he must be working for the other side. But then he said, what he says is kind of look at the results. Look at the results of my ministry. People are repenting. They're coming to God. They're turning away from their sin and they're following after Jesus. They're following after God. He's teaching them how to do that. And he's healing them of diseases that in that day people thought that might that disease might be the result of some sin that they have committed or some sin in their family that the disease has been caused by sin. And so the release of that disease automatically translates in their minds to they have been forgiven of that sin. It has been paid for in some way. And Jesus says, so are you saying that after... Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of Satan's M.O. working. Now he's changed strategies to get people to connect to God, to get people to repent, to to free them from sin. No, that's a house divided. Satan's strategy is not to move people closer to God he wants to move people farther away from God so if he's doing that and I'm having these results and I'm working for him then it's a house divided and you know that a house divided if there's that internal thinking it will not stand what they didn't think to realize was that if Jesus is really working for Satan, he should be pushing people away from God. And he clearly was not doing that. He was helping people find God. He was helping people be free from their sin and be free from the consequences of their sin. And then he talks about this unpardonable sin that causes, you know, many of us to to wring our hands and wonder about have we done this? Well, the unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about is both comforting and it's sobering. So let me explain. The sin that Jesus is talking about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is that you are wondering what you do with the person and work of Jesus. It is a Question about what you do with the person and work of Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit's role in the world and the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to remind us of what we know and to teach us of what we do not know about how to follow Jesus, about how we can know for certain that Jesus was who He said He was, that He accomplished the things that He said He that we read that He accomplished, and that His death and resurrection truly have paid for our sins and purchased a place for us in heaven. And the unpardonable sin is that we look at the work of Jesus' life with all of the good that he did and all of the godliness that he portrayed and think that Jesus isn't doing God's work, that his work wasn't a work of grace, that Jesus isn't sufficient. And that is the gospel. What we do with Jesus will determine our eternity. And that is a sobering thought because that means that anyone can commit this sin and that this sin makes it not hard for anyone to be against Jesus. But it's not just sobering, it's comforting because conversely, it means that anyone can also avoid this sin. It's not hard for anyone, anyone to be for Jesus. And that means this, the right people on Jesus' bus aren't the people we necessarily choose, but they are the people that God chooses. And Jesus emphasizes this in a very clearly personal way in verse 31. We read in verse 31 that, "...then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived." Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him and a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Who can do God's will? Anyone. Regardless of their starting point. Regardless of their closeness to Jesus in the past. Regardless of their blood affiliation. And that means this. On God's team, it's not about where people start with God. It's where they finish. It's not about where people start with Jesus. It's where they finish with Jesus. We see this in the Old Testament in the story of David, where David is not even considered to be a qualified candidate to be the king of israel and the prophet samuel comes to the family of jesse and he looks at his older brothers and thinks one of these boys must be the next king of israel and god keeps saying no 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 and finally they work through the whole list and samuel asks jesse the dad are there any other sons that you might have well yeah there's, there's one. Jesse says there's David he's out in the field he's not even worth being here he's just a shepherd he's nothing well Samuel says hey he's a son so bring him in he may be qualified and as David comes in God says to Samuel that's the one and we read later in scripture that the point of that story is that man looks on the outside and God looks on the heart and the heart is a thing that can be for God, for Jesus, or against Jesus. And it's a simple choice to decide to be for Jesus. And that simple decision means that every other sin can be forgiven. Even sins of slander. I was listening to a podcast this week that talk about Quarrels and fighting among Christians, the ones where people just end relationships and break churches and break ministries over the kind of vitriol and strife and anger and fighting that sometimes happens in churches. And it started, seems to start, all church conflict seems to start with that kind of slander about others. And Jesus says, even that can be forgiven. And that's a comforting thought because that means that anyone, regardless of where they are starting, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, like religious zealots, can be part of Jesus' team, can be part of Jesus' family, because on God's team, on God's family, it's not about where people start, but where people finish. You know, that means the following things. First, that's the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel, it means that not only is God's salvation open to anyone, but God's ministry is open to anyone. It's open to everyone, regardless of resume, regardless of history, regardless of past. He can take someone who's been a total character their whole life and build character in their life. That we still have basic things that we need to do in order to follow God's will and we're going to start talking about that in the following passages over the next few weeks. But where that, where I struggle to apply that in my own life is that I realize that sometimes I think Christians, me included, we get upset when we think God doesn't choose the right kind of people. And for me, that shows up when he chooses someone else instead of me. Because I, I honestly think sometimes I'm just the best qualified candidate. I, I, I think that I should be sometimes, well, God, how come that person has that ministry and I don't? There's a jealousy that sometimes builds up in me when I look at what other people have been able to accomplish and, uh, for God and who they've been able to influence for God and, and so on. And this passage is just a clear reminder and a refreshing reminder that it's not about that. It's not about being overlooked. God invites people to do specific tasks in ministry. And it's not about the qualifications. Of course, I want to do my very best. Of course, I want to take what I have and hone it as sharply as I possibly can. But that doesn't mean if I don't have those things that God doesn't have something significant for me to do. That's the nature of the gospel is that salvation is open to anyone regardless of their past. And ministry, significant ministry, even ministry that's bigger, larger, more influential than what I'm doing, is open to anyone regardless of their past. The second thing that means, the first is that it's the nature of the gospel. The second thing that that means is that it's not about where people start, but where they finish. That's both a daily act in our lives and a summary review of our lives. It means that your decisions take you somewhere and the things that you do daily can take you to or lead you away from a place where you can say at the end of your life, I accomplished God's will for me. The heart of a follower always knows that they're not the leader and they live according to that the decisions i make on a daily basis the decisions that you make on a daily basis ultimately wrestle around this question not am i doing my will or your will Are they leading us to a place where we can say, like Jesus said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was preparing for the cross, his death, please take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of us daily so that when we come to the end of our days, when our ministry time is done, people look at us, and more importantly, God looks at us and says, you, say, you can clearly tell from this person's life that they said God's will be done in them, and they did God's will for them. I think one of the challenges that we struggle, that I struggle with in this passage, is that sometimes we look at following Jesus like it's a hundred yard dash. In a hundred yard dash, everybody lines up on the same line, and then it just depends who's fastest, that's who wins. However, it's more like a a relay race and a marathon where the relay race, an 800 meter relay, for example, that's around a track. And when we look at how God calls certain people to certain ministries, we think, well, that, minis- that person's farther back. They're, they've got the inside track, but they're farther back. And that person on the outside, they're farther ahead. That's not fair. But you know how those uh, longer tracks work, those circles. It's not that they're even, but the distance is the same. The requirement is the same. The answer that every person needs to give is the same. Am I accomplishing God's will? Who am I for in life? Am I for God or against God? Am I doing His will or am I doing mine or someone else's? Do I know who I'm following? And to God. Being invited to serve in his family is not about the sprint, but it's a track that we run that he's wondering where do we finish. Do we finish? It's not about where we start, but about where we finish. Some questions. As we wrap up our time together, you'll be discussing them in your growth groups this week, and you can discuss them with those that you watched with today online, maybe journal about them this week as well. Here they are. Question one. Can you think of a time in your life when you wondered if someone was serving in the wrong ministry? If you were serving in the wrong ministry. Question two. How has God used unlikely people to help you grow as a follower of Jesus? And question three. How has God grown in your faith as you... Have served him. On God's team, God's family, it's not about where people start, but where people finish. My prayer for us is that when our work is done, people would look at us and say, It was not their will, but the Lord's will that they accomplished. Let me pray. Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me for the times when I have lived according to my will? When I have looked at the race that you have called others to run and said, that's not fair, that's what I want. When you show that scandal of grace, not just in who you save regardless of their past, but who you use for significant ministry and invite to do significant ministry despite their past? Would you forgive me of those times? And Lord, would you help me, would you help us each day to say, Lord, what is your will? Help me to do that today. Help me to accomplish your will. Help me to follow you in all of my dealings and my interactions and my to-do list and my agenda each day. Help me to do your will in my life with my family, with my friends, in my home, in my work, in my relationships. Lord, would you teach us how to do your will and know the joy of being your family, of being for you, of having the heart of a follower. And would you continue to remind us that when we feel like things are unfair, would you remind us That it's not about where people start, but about where people finish. So would you help us to choose today to build the kind of future that finishes well? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.